good to see each and every one this morning. It's good to see the liquid sunshine outside, and I know many of you are thrilled to see that. And it is a beautiful day for us to gather together to worship God. We've already enjoyed singing some wonderful psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We've gone to God in prayer. We've remembered our Lord's death in the Lord's Supper, and we've given of our means. And now, as we continue in our worship to God, we want to take a portion of His Word and be able to try to understand what God wants us to be as people. For those of you who are visiting with us, we have been studying from the book of Ephesians in a chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse fashion, in doing expositions from the book of Ephesians. And this morning we're going to look at those first few verses of Ephesians chapter 2. To begin with, by way of introduction this morning, I want to tell you that one of the hardest things in life is to fairly and honestly evaluate one's life. Now I want you to think about yourself. I can easily evaluate you. I can look and see your sins and I can see the things that are a part of your life, but when I come to myself, it's hard for me to be objective. It's hard for me to look at myself and view myself as I ought to. Let me tell you, there are two different perspectives that men often have when they start looking at their life. First of all, they look at themselves as being worthless, as unworthy of being loved or saved. There's some people who, when they come to their portion of life, say, I am so bad and have been so bad, how could God ever love me? How could God ever concern himself with my salvation because of all that I have done that has been against him and against the Christ? But I suggest to you that the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. On the flip side of that, there are those who are presumptuous. That is, they cannot see any sin or any fault in their own lives. They are the kind of people that when they look at themselves, they think, I have never done anything that's been that bad. They look at themselves and think, I really don't need salvation because I'm already good enough on my own. Let me point you to a couple passages of Scripture. In Romans 12 and verse 2, Paul would say, or verse 3, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you to not think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Not to think more highly than I ought to think. I shouldn't put myself up here on a pedestal and say, God, you ought to be thankful you have me. To illustrate that even a little better, if you go to Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 9, and he spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. You think about that for just a moment, the way that Jesus phrased that. 
He prayed not with God. He prayed with himself. What did he say? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. You see, in his own eyes, God was ought to be thankful that he had him as a follower. But beginning with verse 13, And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat himself on the breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, the perspective that you have here is one says, I'm all right. The other says, God, I just need for you to be forgiving of me, not even raising his eyes to heaven. It's hard for people to look at themselves properly in this life. It's often hard to admit our powerlessness and completely rely on the mercy of God. Somewhere along the line we want to say, but God, you have to have me in this picture. No, that's what, if you will look at the end of chapter 1, just look back up in your Bibles to verse 19 where he talks about the great mighty power of God. And then you'll notice as you get to the first part of chapter 2, his point is man does not have the power to save himself. He tries to portray to us who we really are in this life. So our lesson this morning is only going to have two points. Dead, alive. Verses 1 through 3, dead. Verses 4 through 7, alive. And I will tell you before we begin that we'll spend the majority of our time on our first point about death. Most of the second point will be dovetailed into next Sunday morning's lesson on the grace of God. So let's look first of all at the idea of dead. Let's look again at verses 1 through 3. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also, or also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. You who were dead. If you'll notice, if you're looking in your Bibles, if you have a King James, American Standard, or New King James, the translators will always put their added words in italics. And if you'll notice, the words made alive are in italics. And that's because the translators thought that you might lose track of the point that is made all the way down in verse 5, that he made us alive. And so they inserted those words. But literally, the original text says, you who were dead. Think about that for a minute. Dead. How are they dead? 
Are they dead physically? Is somehow Paul preaching to dead people who are in the graves? No. In fact, they are dead spiritually. If you want to go to Matthew chapter 8 and look at verse 22, Jesus makes a statement that is a little bit puzzling unless you understand the context of it. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. You think about the, interpreting that one literally. Let dead people bury dead people? That just doesn't make sense at all. How can they do anything in this physical life? And when you go to the context, the verse that precedes it, there's a man who asked Jesus, rather than following him, can I go back and first bury my father? And that's when Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. He's talking about let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. I've got a greater calling for you. In Revelation 3 and verse 1, when he writes to the church at Sardis, he says, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works and that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. They're not dead physically, they're dead spiritually. So what does it mean when he says, and you who were dead? He's talking about people who are dead spiritually. My first question that I always would ask is, what killed the soul? If I'm walking along and I'm walking down a sidewalk and all of a sudden I come upon a person who's lying there upon the ground and I reach down to see if they're breathing and they're not breathing and then you put their, your finger on their carotid artery over here, the artery, and you feel and see if they're alive and there's no pulse, and you ask the question, why are they dead? Did they die of some immediate disease or did they die of unnatural causes? Did someone kill them? If there is a dead spiritually person, what killed them? Paul says, in trespasses and sins. That's what kills the soul. Notice with me James chapter 1 verse 15. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Sin will kill your soul. In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 6, he's talking about widows. He's talking about younger widows who, if they do not marry, might get involved in sinful behavior and said, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. People in this life who are pursuing pleasure, pursuing whatever the world has to offer to them, are spiritually dead. Now let's keep following what Paul is saying. He says, in which you once walked. They had walked in trespasses and sins. Listen to Colossians 3, verses 5 through 7. I think this is a wonderful commentary on this passage. Therefore put to death your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. Because upon these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked 
when you lived in them. Notice, you lived in these pathways of life. That's what it means to walk in them. But I want to key on the word here, once walked. That means that they're no longer walking in them. They've changed their lives. When Paul had written the Corinthians, he said to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Thankfully, in this audience here, there were people who were once dead, but now they're alive because they're no longer walking according to the ways of this world. And then he goes on to say that now works in the sons of disobedience. There are still people who are walking in that pathway, and this same spirit is working in them. And the point that I want to draw out of this is everyone has some sort of past. There's not a one of us who can look back and say, well, I didn't really have a past. I didn't really have a time of rebellion in my life. Do you have sins that you have committed in the past? If you deny that, you're denying God. 1 John chapter 1 and verses 8 and 10. If you say that you have not sinned, you also are denying what Romans 3 and verse 10 says, There's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I want to drive home the point. At one point, all of us were dead. Then he goes and he tries to focus us on who and what this means by saying, according to the course of this world. There are courses which are patterns that you follow. You go to a golf course. Most of the time you go from hole one to hole two. There are courses that you may follow in life. Maybe you'll take a course in some particular topic. You begin at a certain point and you end at a point following a pathway. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust thereof. But he who does the will of God abides forever. That's the way the world lives. Romans 12, 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world. This world has a pattern that it follows. But who runs this world? Who is the one that is influencing and shaping the direction of this life? He is called here the prince of the power of the air. Now, I don't have time to go into the background of that phrase, but let me tell you, it has reference to this physical world and all that's in it. Let me point out to you that Jesus, 
in the book of John, in chapter 12, 14, and 16, all that are in a span of just a short period of time, addresses this one. Notice with me, John 12, 31. Now the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Chapter 14, verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Chapter 16, verse 11. Of judgment because of the ruler of this world is judged. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. He is said to be the God of this age who has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. What you come away with is Satan has many designations. You can call him the prince of the power of the air. You can call him the ruler of this world. You can call him the God of this age. But the reality is he's the great deceiver of all men. And then he goes on to say, among whom also we once conducted ourselves. We were a part of them. Something that I have observed from reading the book of Ephesians this time through that I guess I had never noticed. And that's how often Paul uses the term we and you and them. And when he does, he's very careful to draw lines of distinction. Do you know something this morning? Everyone here is either in the Lord's church or he's not in the Lord's church. Everyone here this morning is either in a right relationship with God or they are not in a right relationship with God. That's the facts. And Paul said, we once were a part of them. Thankfully, we're no longer a part of them. How do you no longer be a part of them? Listen to 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. You've got to come out of the world. Revelation 18, verse 4, he says, even to those who are Christians. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out from her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. God is saying to us, the world lives over here. You don't live over there. You go over here and live with good people, righteous people, holy people. Well, what are they doing? The them. He said they are fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Ponder that for just a thought in your minds. Desires of the flesh, physical things that you do, and desires of the mind. Sometimes people say, well, I want you to know I have never committed fornication. I have never committed adultery on my wife or on my husband. But do you know the Bible, Jesus made it clear that if man lusts after a woman in his heart, that he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. There can be sins of the mind just like there are sins of the flesh. And there are physical sins versus spiritual or mental sins. In 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, Paul says, Therefore having these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, 
perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Romans 7 verse 5, to me this is one of the passages that really needs to be stressed. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Paul's saying when we were in the flesh, those sinful passions were stirred up. They were aroused in us, he said, but that led to death. So chapter 13 and verse 14 of that same book says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. When you put the Lord on in baptism, when you become a Christian, you quit making opportunities for that. And then finally of this passage, We're by nature children of wrath you've been reading ahead and studying along, this passage may have puzzled you just a little bit. Especially if you have friends who are part of denominational churches that believe in Calvinism because this is the darling passage of the Calvinist. They'll look at that passage and they'll say, see it says by nature children of wrath. And they'll key on that word nature. And I'll tell you the word nature means one's disposition from birth not acquired. I'm sure you've heard about the homosexual debate. Are they homosexuals by nature or by nurture? Were they born that way or did they learn it? The word here is the word of something that a person acquires in birth. And someone says, so you mean the children of wrath are by nature that? The Calvinistic doctrine of total depravity, that you are born totally depraved with nothing good in you at all? But I've got to ask the question. When a child is born, whom is the child of? He's not a child of the devil. How do you get to be a child of the devil? Is it something that is chosen like being a child of God? Let me illustrate it for you. Matthew 23 and verse 15. Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. You see, you make him that. In John 8 and verse 44, Jesus said, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. It's when you choose the devil, and you see, when we're born, we're born in innocence. But at some point in time, we can start to determine right from wrong. And at that point, we choose who it is we want to follow. And the reality is, we choose the devil. And we choose sin. And we're dead, according to chapter 2, verse 1, because of our sins and our trespasses, not because of what we inherited from someone else. One is born innocent but chooses to believe the lie of the devil. And these naturally are deserving of God's wrath. Chapter 2, verse 2, he talks about now works of the sons of disobedience. Chapter 5, verse 6, he says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience.
Now, I know you're saying, how's he going to cover those last few verses? This, this is going to be quick because this is just simply to dovetail into next week's lesson. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Six times in the book of Ephesians, he talks about the richness of God. God is able. He has the power. He has the ability. And then he says, because of his great love, 19 times in the book of Ephesians, he references love. He made us alive together. One of the things that I'm enjoying doing in studying this is to prepare, is to even study the various verbs that are used. In the original language, there's a present tense verb, which means continual action. And there's an aorist tense verb, which means one-time action. And if you have a, something used in the aorist tense in the past, it refers to a one-time action. And made us alive is in this aorist tense, which means this is an event in our lives. It's not as if we were being made alive. It's we were made alive at a particular time, at a point, if you will. Now, when did that happen? The imagery of Jesus being raised from death to life is certainly behind this. If you haven't grasped that, you, I haven't done my job in presenting it to you. But I want to tie these verses together and then we're going to draw the lesson to a close. In Colossians 2, verses 12 and 13, Buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of flesh, he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, when did that take place of being made alive? At the very time he talks about in verse 12, being buried with him in baptism. Folks, I want to be as plain as I possibly can be. Death is when you're in the world, when you're following the devil, and that is before you become a Christian. When you are baptized, you are initiated into the body of Christ. You are made alive. That is that event. That's not the only place that talks about that. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Where does that leave us? Are you dead or are you alive? In order to be alive, you have to be dead to sins. Some will die in their sins, and some will die to their sins.
There's two or three passages. I just want to read these quickly and then we're going to extend the invitation. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, to, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In 1 Timothy 2.11, this is a faithful saying. For if we die with Him, we shall also live with Him. If you'll take your songbooks now and prepare to sing this wonderful invitation song. We want to encourage you, if you're not a Christian, to become one this morning. If you'll come forward... We'll assist you this morning being baptized into Christ. If you are a child of God who needs to be restored, it's time for you to come home. And would you come as we stand and sing?